0: In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria. Gratus plenitudo misericordiae. benedicta tu in mulieribus. Et benedictus fructus ventris tu iesus. Our Lady of Grace, pray for us. In the Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Okay, so the conference is on negativity. Uh, and the reason we want to go into it is because of the fact that uh, when people are negative, it actually has a very distinct um, effect spiritually and even psychologically. So to that end, the first thing we want to do is talk about the psychological faculties. We talked about this once already, didn't we? I think. Okay. So you have five senses, right? Five exterior senses. And those five exterior senses are unified by what's called the, the uh, common sense power and basically what this power does is it takes all your sense experience and unifies it into one image and expresses it into your imagination in the form of an image Okay, and we know that by the way this is all part of the, uh, the material side of a human being. This is all material. And the reason we know it's material, or that it's part of the brain, is there's an actual part of the brain that when it dysfunctions, people hear things at a different time in which they see it. Okay. So it expresses this image into the imagination. Then, and at the same time, it also expresses it into the memory. Okay. Then there's this thing called the cogitative power and basically what it does is it has the power of association it looks at the image oops, looks at the image in the imagination and then it goes back into memory and compares the images or finds the images that are similar to it <coughs> and then takes the information from those images and merges it back into the imagination. So how do we know this actually happens all at the level of the brain? It's pretty simple. So when your mother walks into the room, your, the image in your imagination is this figure of a woman. and You have this image of a woman in your imagination. The cognitive power goes back into memory, brings the information that this is your mother, merges it back from past experience, merges it back into the image, and so you immediately recognize that she's your mother. This happens almost instantaneously. It's very quick. The more intelligent you are, the quicker that it actually occurs. Okay. So then, um, this is, and we also know this because Alzheimer's patients, they can't, people that they've known all their life the plaque builds up on the neurons and so as a result of that they can't make those associations and um, they can't remember certain things and so they, people that they've known their whole life they don't recognize and they don't know who they are. So we know this all occurs at this level. So then, of course, we have an agent intellect which is the ability to abstract. But that the agent intellect abstracts the concept. By the way, don't worry about this. This will all become important. You'll see why this extracts the conceptual content latent in the image. So I see a bunch of dogs. It extracts the nature of a dog out. Presses that concept into what's called the possible intellect. And this is the part that is immaterial. This is why um, Father Hardin said you can have a mind. You can have intellectual... uh, In fact, people in heaven have intellectual activities, but they don't have their body. So we can actually have... uh, Activity intellectually that's not cor- does not correspond to um, that is sorry that there's no bodily organ performing anything in relationship to it. This concept then once I ha- under- once that concept enters my mind, I have the un- uh, act of understanding. Then the possible intellect makes an act of judgment, and it does that by looking back at the image. So, if I if someone tells me all dogs are four footed, okay. Except for the guy that happens to get his leg chopped off. We're talking about normal dogs. Okay. So the dog, I have this concept of dog, and then I have to go back to the image and think about four footed and my cogitative power goes back into memory and tries to th- you know, tries to make any association of any dogs that by nature only have three legs or something of that sort. Right? And then it doesn't have that, and it brings that information back in and it recognizes that I don't have that so that I know that proposition that all dogs are four-footed is true because of the content of the stuff contained in, infra- in the ima- image. Okay, so truth is when my possible intellect looks at something in the concept and goes back to the image and judges whether it pertains to reality or not. That's how we know the truth. So, and it also judges the good. You know, this is morally good or morally bad. That's presented to the will. The will then makes a choice and if it does, then it to do something that it can move the lower faculties. Okay. Now, what happens is is that when we have an experience of something, the cogitative power not only makes an association, but it also can make an assessment about whether something is actually good or bad for me on a physical level. And that assessment, that perspective, that perspective that it puts on the image, that it puts on the image, that particular perspective that it's good or bad or what have you, is what ends up moving my emotions. So I have my appetites, who sit and watch what's in the imagination. And then when they get moved, I have an emotion. Okay. And that's, that emotion is determined by the perspective that you take in relationship to it. So if it's something that's future, and it's evil, and you can't overcome it, you're going to have the emotion of fear. If it's something that's future, but you can probably attain it, um, and it is attainable, and you actually want it, then you have the emotion of hope. Okay. So this is um, this is basically all how this. That's a, us in a nutshell. Okay. Now, why is this got? What's this got to do with negativity? Here's the thing. There's actually four kinds of negativity that I want to talk about. But the first one is the person who um, just simply always sees what's negative, presenting uh, from any particular content. This is the person who spiritually is always looking at everything that's wrong instead of everything that's right. Okay, So this is the person. Now, why is this a problem? Because if I'm focusing on what's wrong, what I am is I, I'm focusing, I have to have the image of the things that are wrong. From that, I have then, the emotions arise, right? And so the negative emotions arise, like hatred, um, which you see, I mean, among some of the traditionalists. Hatred, anger. Anger is a perception of, uh, of injury with a desire for vindication. As a result of that, because they see the church getting hurt, they get very angry very quickly, and they're always focusing on everything that's wrong in the church. Um, or, they'll f- and, or they'll just focus on everything that's wrong in their family or in their, um, amongst their kids or their parents or whatever the case is. So they're always focusing on what's negative. And then they're angry. They wonder why they're angry all the time, right? Well, it's because of the fact that the image, the perspective on the image is causing the emotion of anger. And so if you're caught, and then, so you're always looking at it that way. But then you got another problem on your hands. If you keep doing it, then you end up habituating the emotions and disposing them to easily move to anger or sorrow, or despair, or hatred, or whatever the case, or any negative emotion, you dispose it to easily move that way. And then you also habituate it so that it's very easy to do it. So then basically what happens, and this is basically what depression is, is that people are just focusing on the negative all the time. Okay, But then also, the other thing is, too, is, is that when you make the choice to keep thinking about the thing, the will moves the imagination to, to stay focused on the thing, and so the cogitative power learns that when certain things come into your experience, or your family members, or whatever the case is, comes into your experience, that the cogitative power, because you're looking at the negative all the time, the cogitative power gets habituated into doing what? Going back into the memory and finding what? Not the good stuff about the individual, the bad stuff about the individual. And so it's constantly bringing stuff back into it. This is when people, if they've had a bad experience of somebody and then they've kind of given in to the thought and thinking about it, they'll say, why is it that every time I'm around him or her, I just want to strangle her? I don't even know why. You know, the thing she did was long year in the past. Yeah, the problem is, is that you habituated the cognitive power to look at it that way. The second thing, the next thing is that the possible intellect when it makes an act of judgment here to know the truth of something we can habituate our intellect to make specific kinds of judgments in relationship to specific kinds of things so that if we're always looking at something in a negative way we're going to habituate the possible intellect to look at everything from the point of view of what's negative now, then the will is a blind faculty it can't will anything on its own So this negativity, this negative judgment that we have of of people or things or whatever the case is, which is in the possible intellect, is presented to the will, which then means that the will is going to suffer sorrow and things of this sort, and it's going to be painful to our will, or we'll start taking delight in it. Where does that come in? St. Thomas says, he says, when we act according to the disposition that's in our faculty... Regardless of whether the object causes pain or not, we get a pleasure out of it. They discovered this in modern brain studies, that people who are depressed, their brain actually releases pleasure drugs when they think about negative stuff. Okay. And we can get into the habit of that. And The converse of that is the case, we know is the case, because if we're in a negative disposition, and then somebody comes along and tries to cheer us up, We find the guy annoying and we don't want to go that direction. We find it painful, right? We find it the opposite, okay? So basically, if you're focusing on the negative all the time, now it doesn't mean that you put your head in the sand. It just means that you only give something the degree of tension that it's necessary usually what drives the negativity is some kind of an attachment. They have an attachment to the church or the state of politics or the state of their family or whatever the case is and so as a result of that, they're always looking at the negative and they're always trying to purge the negative out of the individual. And And this is something that can be a bit of a problem because I've met families where the father or the mother is extremely hard on the children because they think if I keep on top of them eventually they'll become perfect. That is absolutely absurd from a very basic principle. I mean, no, no, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's a very easy kind of con- mindset to kind of fall into. Why is it absurd? It's based upon the principle of, the, of sufficient reason, that the existence of a thing is accountable either in itself or in another. What does that mean? It means you can't give what you don't have. If you're not perfect, you're not going to make your children perfect. If you're not perfect, you're not going to make the church perfect. If you're not perfect, you're not going to make the politics perfect. So the first thing you have to accept the fact is that you don't have the capacity to render even yourself perfect. So that's what you have to do. You just realize, okay, I can't, this isn't my thing. And part of the negativity is getting sucked into that idea if I just keep on top of it or I keep thinking about it or I keep working at it, it'll get better. It's not going to happen. So the first thing that we have, you have to kind of realize, and all you're doing is by focusing on all that, is just habituating your faculties to a bit of a, to becoming disordered. Ultimately, we're only thinking of things that are evil. In fact, that's really what people are in hell are. All the people in hell and all the demons in hell, the only thing they think about is stuff that's negative all the time. So I tell people, well, look, the more you think about this stuff, the more you're just kind of approaching hell. This is what hell is like. It's just, you know, you're always thinking of everything that's negative and evil. Whereas everybody in heaven, even when they see bad things happening, there's still joy. Now, okay, so what does this mean? It means that part of this negativity is only focusing, again, on the things to the degree that's necessary on your state in life, which is going to be the series of things we'll talk about later, but necessary in your state life, and don't spend any more time thinking about it. Not any more time than is absolutely necessary in order to, for you to, to fulfill your duties or whatever the case is, or to pray, whatever, but you don't focus on it. This is a, this negativity where you're focusing on the thing and then things become disorder. By the way, when you're focusing on the thing that's negative, what happens is, is over the course of time, when you're always looking at the thing negative, if the reality is that the thing changes and isn't as bad as you think it is, eventually you stop knowing the truth about the thing. This is this is actually this is this is what happens all the time when I talk to people about the papacy. Everybody is looking at the situation in the papacy, and they're all there's just constant negativity. If they knew what the limits were of papal infallibility, and also you know the fact that historically there have been popes that have held heretical ideas. They, wouldn't, they would realize, okay, as long as it's within this confines, it's not an issue. They would focus on the positive aspect. Under these conditions, he's infallible. Under these, I don't worry about it. God will take care of it. Okay. So, and it doesn't mean I don't pray for him. It just means that I can't be focusing on it. But what's happening is, is now they're getting to the point where their judgment is getting drawn to one extreme or another. St. Thomas says that truth is judging a thing not greater than it is, not less than it is, but as it is. And what's happening is is when you become really negative, you tend to judge things based upon defect to where you don't fully grasp the truth of the situation. This is true about practically everything. It's very true about traditionalists, even in relationship to their own interior life, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But it gets to the point where they stop being able to see the truth of the matter and of course, because they're thinking of the negative, they're having these emotions all the time, and over the course of time, the emotions start getting the better of them to where they're not thinking clearly at all, and then they end up with something like seducantism or the like because they're not thinking clearly. They just don't want the emotional pain or whatever the case is that goes along with it, even though they're constantly thinking about how bad the Pope is or something of that sort. Okay. So then they, we, if you look, if you look at the different kinds of negativity. So in other words, basically what it boils down to is if you constantly think of things negative, you're never going to become perfect, you're not going to make the thing that you want to become perfect that you see the defect in. And third of all, you're just going to develop vice. Your emotions are going to be out of control, you're going to be angry, you're going to be this, you're going to be that. You're You're never going to fully conquer those things until you get your mind off it. I tell people who are scrupulous you know, they're looking at their own problems and their own sin and their own thing. That's, that's just a form of negativity. But part of it basically boils down to, as uh, you've heard me say this before, you're not that important. That's what I tell people who are scrupulous. You're constantly thinking of yourself, right? Which brings up a very important point. Demons have a principle. They've got several of them. And one of them is anything but God. Anything but God. And that means even state of the church, thinking about spiritual matters, anything like that, as long as it's not God. They don't care. If they can get you totally hung up about some particular spiritual issue and get you focused on that and spending all sorts of time, they know they've got you derailed because you're not focusing on God. Okay. Negativity and then the traditional movement, one of the reasons we see so little advance in the, among the traditionalists in holiness is because they're all getting bogged down in the negativity of all the stuff that's wrong, instead of focusing on God, ultimately. And if you tell them that, they just kind of look at you like you're from outer space. But the point is is that that's part of the difficulty. There are, so with negativity, the demons try and get you negative in order to get your mind off of the thing that's really important, which is God, ultimately. There's four kinds of negativity I want to talk about. The first is in relationship to self. Now, negativity in relationship to self is usually based upon our own sinfulness. We look at ourselves, we know we're sinful, we've got these vices, we've got this problem, I got that problem, etc. But the difficulty with ourselves is, St. Thomas says that when we think of ourselves, God inclined us to see that we're actually good, in some manner at least, and so as a result, by natural law by the way, and as a result of that he says that it's very easy for man in the state of fallen nature to think himself better than he actually is, to become intoxicated with the pleasure that he gets out of thinking about himself, he says. Okay, now the converse of that can be true. Most negativity that I find in relationship to people and themselves is rooted actually in overestimation of themselves. Now, it sounds counterintuitive, but there's there's a real logic to it. Basically what it is, is they'll look at themselves and they'll say to themselves, I cannot believe I did that in the past. I cannot believe, you know, in other words, they look at those things in the past that they did, it's painful, They don't like it. They think to themselves, I should have been better than that. Really? You think so? You think without grace that you're going to be better than that? And and that's the real key point. And so when they start looking on themselves, when people beat themselves up constantly and have this self-loathing and think they have to beat themselves up in order to do that negativity towards themselves, it's because of why they're not focusing on God. God is the one who's going to get that corrected. God's the one who's going to heal that. God's the one who's going to do those things through his grace to get you straightened out. You're focusing on yourself and beating yourself up is never going to correct it fully. It's impossible. Again, because we're back to the principle of sufficient reason. You can't give what you don't have. You would like to think that you should have been perfect. All right. Look, you're not the Blessed Virgin Mary. So... You can cut yourself a little bit of slack. It doesn't mean that you just say, "Okay, then I don't have to worry about any of my sins in the past." That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that when it comes to the correcting of the problem, all of the saints say there comes a point, especially at a turning point towards the end of the passive, purgative way, where the surrender to God to correct the problems has to become total and complete because we can't. Our our defects are so deeply rooted that we cannot root them out ourselves. He has to do it. He's the only perfect agent that can root them out fully. So that means that in relationship to ourselves, there's two things that have to happen. One is, you've got to put thinking of yourself. It's just not that important. But also, if, you, you know, if you're beating yourself up, you're thinking about yourself. If you're loathing about yourself, you're you know, loathing, I hate myself, if you're still thinking about yourself. You're just, again, you're not that important. Start thinking about God. The second thing is as God gets more into your faculties. Ironically, these other faculties, the disorders that you've caused from the negativity and thinking about those negative things will start to get corrected just from thinking about him because the habits will start to be slowly broken. But there's another thing too, and uh, this is the year of mercy, although something tells me that at the end of this year of mercy we're going to get mercilessly whopped. But, uh, but anyway, we have to have mercy on ourselves. What is mercy? This is a huge question right now because everyone's running around saying we should be merciful to them, merciful to them. Which really is just another way of telling in some people's minds just saying it's okay to let people remain in their sin. That's not true. That's not that's false mercy. True mercy is what? Saint Thomas says that mercy is the loosening of the bonds of justice for the sake of the individual to whom justice would be applied. In other words. With us, with God, it's better for us spiritually for Him not to make us pay the full effect of all of our sin in order so because if we did, you know, it would just be brutal and we would never advance spiritually. It's better for us to be loosened to those bonds of justice so that we can be freed of that so that we can move towards God, right? In other words, we can actually advance towards Him. So when we're talking about Mercy to other people, it just basically means that what? That we recognize that we shouldn't be so harsh and severe on them because we recognize that in ourselves we would be just as bad without grace, but it doesn't mean that we just leave them there. True mercy is I want what's best for the person. I'm letting them off, the, I'm, le- I'm not going to hold the bond of justice against them. I'm going to forgive them for their sake. Now, this is important because this means that on the external level, St. Thomas says, should I extend charity to everybody? And he says, well, interiorly, you have to have charity for everybody. And interiorly, we have to have mercy for everybody or forgiveness for everybody. However, in relationship to the external manifestation of that, he says, it's governed by prudence. Because there's some people, if you just, if you're merciful to them, they're just going to get worse. So, or in the case of charity, if you're charitable to them, it's just going to confirm them in their sins, which makes them worse. This is a very key point because just letting people off the hook and say, it's okay, you know, they're living together, don't worry about it, you know, or have mercy on them or give them communion as a matter of mercy, you're actually harming them. It's not merciful because you're not seeking after what's good for them. In fact, what you're doing is you're confirming them in their disorder, which is actually vicious. Okay, so that all being said, the same actually applies to ourselves. Why do we have to... Why do we have to... Let loose of the mercy in relationship to, why do we have to have mercy for ourselves, in relationship to our past sins? Well, because it's for our spiritual well-being in in a couple, in a few ways. The first is, is that when we are harsh on ourselves, again, we're not going to correct ourselves, and we're acting contrary to charity. We have to have charity for ourselves where we love to ourselves, not for our sakes, but for God's sake. And if we're harsh on ourselves, we lack charity. The second thing is, is that if you're holding on to the debt of justice in relationship to yourself that you violated, you're still holding on to your sin. There's an attachment to your sin. And to fully let loose of that sin from the past, you have to have mercy on yourself and say, okay, I forgive myself, which means I will... I'm going to not try and force myself to pay the full debt because I can't. So I'm just going to let loose of it, trust it to the mercy of God, and ask Him to correct it and ask Him to apply His mercy to me. Okay. This, if we don't do that, if we're just constantly negative in relationship to ourselves, which most traditions are, then and it's because of this subtle Pelagianism. Pelagianism says that I can reach perfection on my own. And that is simply not true. We cannot reach it because we don't have it. Right? So we, that means that the first step, to, one of the first steps, and you'll see this, there is transformational changes in people's spiritual lives when they forgive themselves for stuff. It doesn't mean they let themselves off the hook. They still have to do reparation, and there are certain things that they have to do. They still have to work on trying to correct it. But they're not going to beat themselves up about it. They're just going to set about the task. By the way, if you're beating yourself up about it, it means you're beating yourself up. It doesn't mean you're correcting the problem. Correcting the problem is working on the specific actions to overcome that vice. Beating yourself up is not performing those actions. So that's, again, why you have to forgive the debt, is you have to have mercy on yourself so that you can actually move forward. But that mercy is like any other mercy. And many people have heard my conferences heard me say this. Mercy is for two kinds of people, the stupid and the contrite. We know from the Old Testament, God says, if you're sorry, I'll let you off of this. Why? Because when we're sorry in relationship to something, what happens is is when we committed a sin, we looked at it under the aspect of the good, which was false. And so once we recognize it's evil and take ownership of it and recognize that it's evil and express our sorrow for it, our sorrow is in congruity with the truth of the matter. And so as a result of that, God will let us off the hook because he realizes you know it's evil and so you won't be doing it again in the future. Whereas if we don't have sorrow for it, he's not going to let us off. This is why this whole business of having mercy for people who are obstinately you know, living together or doing these things without marriage, etc., you don't extend mercy to them. I mean, interiorly you might forgive them, um, but externally you don't do that because of the fact that it's harmful to them ultimately, because they're not going to get their act together. So, then, they, so it's basically for those who are sorry, for the stupid, you just didn't know any better. So, God, we know that God will cut some slack to people who just don't have any, have a clue. Now, in relationship to us, it's usually a bit of both. We're usually kind of clueless, and at least in the initial stages when we do stuff. And we sometimes don't realize how damaging the sin, particular sin we might commit is going to be. But then also we actually have to have to forgive ourselves in relationship to these things and quit holding on to the debt because that, as I mentioned, then we're not actually moving forward and we're not developing charity in relationship to ourselves. The other part of that is, is that if we don't forgive ourselves, very often people will go to confession, they'll confess a sin. They'll ask them, did you confess a sin? Yes, but you won't forgive yourself. No, that's the sin of usurpation. You're super usurping the role of God. You're telling God, you forgave me, but I'm not going to forgive myself. You're standing in judgment even of his forgiveness, which is a problem. So you have, be, you have to be willing to forgive yourself in relationship with that just as a matter of being humble before God, letting loose of the debt. Because in heaven, everybody's forgiven themselves. They've let loose of the debt. They've let loose of all these things and to allow God, in order to perfect them. Because if you keep holding on to the defect that you've committed, or the sin that you've committed, you're still holding on to the sin, which means you're not getting rid of it. Okay. At least interiorly or psychologically. So, this is, a big, this is a big point for Trad. They can't perfect themselves. Beating themselves, I think, if I beat myself enough, I'll make myself perfect. No, you won't. You're just going to make yourself a bloody pulp. That's all, in the end. And in the end, all you're going to do is just increase your disorders because you're going to keep thinking of all this negative stuff and then in the end, it's going to be bad. By the way, in heaven, everybody judges themselves as good. Does that mean we should judge ourselves as good in this life? Yes. But from a very distinct cause. We should not look at ourselves as good in ourselves and and because of anything we've done. What we should look at ourselves as good isn't so far as what God has caused in us. By beating ourselves up and by refusing to see anything good in ourselves is contrary to humility. Because you're not willing to lead the life in accordance with the truth. God has caused some virtue, even in the worst people. St. Thomas says that there's no man who is completely devoid of the truth. It is also true in virtue. There's always there's always some area. Even in the worst people's lives, where there's, there's some semblance of virtue, okay. But that's not from their cause, it's from God. So that the humility is to, to look at the good, recognize it, but refer it back to God. And when you do that, he'll increase it. Whereas if you're going to beat yourself up, you're basically telling God, I will make myself good. No, you won't. You're trying to basically take credit for making yourself good, so you've got to stop that. Okay. This means, therefore, that we have to have charity for ourselves. Okay, now charity means love of neighbor and love of God for the sake of God. But charity, St. Thomas says, he says, if you look at the fruits of the Holy Spirit, that is, and the fruits of charity, charity is love of God, which means that you're willing the good, you're willing the good, and you're willing yourself good, by the way. To punish yourself nonstop is not willing yourself good. It's kind of a disordered thing of, I think I can purge myself. No, that's not how you purge yourself. Okay. So this love is, this love St. Thomas, we have love, he says, when um, the thing that we love is present to us, or that we think about it in some way. And so as a result of that, we have this love, which he says is kind of a... Um, in Latin, it's complacentia. It's a kind of a pleasingness with this thing that we have. So when we love God and love our neighbor for God's sake, then he says from that proceeds the next one, which is joy. Why? He says because joy is the result in the will. It's the effect in the will of the beloved being present to the beloved, to the, to the lover. So when we, when we love God regularly, there's going to be a certain joy and a, peace, a joy that will overtake us as a result of that. Then, he says, and by the way, this is one of the ways you know there's practically no charity in the traditional movement. Because there ain't nobody happy. Everybody's miserable while around, Beating up on all the magisterial members and each other. Right? Okay. And then, of course, St. Thomas says that when our will is focused on God and perfectly ordered towards God, there's peace, which is the tranquility of order, because of the fact that our will is now ordered in the way that it was designed to be ordered. And so as a result of that, this is another sign that you know there's very little charity in the traditional movement because there's very little peace. You know, when you go to Mass and you see people, people look miserable. They don't look joyful. They don't look happy. They just look miserable because they're all focusing on everything that's wrong. Okay. And not just a not just relationship to themselves. Okay. By the way, when you're in the habit of always looking at everything that's wrong in yourself, you're still in the habit of looking at what's wrong, which means when you go to other people, all you're going to do is look at what's wrong. Okay. So, in order to combat this negativity, let's put it this way, the negativity is the opposite of the charity. Because the negativity is looking at everything that's that's looking at evil all the time, rather than looking at the good, because love is willing the good of another. She's always looking at the good. Okay. So this is in relationship to ourselves, you have to have charity for yourself, you have to love yourself for God's sake. Which means, if you're loving yourself for God's sake, you are not the terminus of the good that you receive, God is. Which means, you're not going to order things towards your pleasures and your delights and your comfort and things of that sort, you're not going to do that. You're going to look at it and say, what is best for me spiritually? What's best for me spiritually is to get up and go pray. What's best for me spiritually is is to go and read right now because that's what my duty is right now, or whatever the case is. Okay, so if you really love yourself, you're going to hold yourself to a bit of a task, but you're not going to beat yourself up. Okay. Then the next one is a relationship to other people, others. Now, there's there's two groups I want to talk about. The first is family members. I have rarely met a traditional family where charity, joy, peace, and all this stuff is and love is all part of it and where they look at each other benignly. They realize, okay, the guy's got his defects, but he's got this virtue and that virtue and this virtue and that virtue and this is one of the reasons why, you know, he makes a good father a good husband or a good son or whatever the case is. They focus so much on what's wrong. Why? Okay, because we're back to that discussion we had in the conference on perfectionism. It's they're looking for the perfection externally to themselves and they think they can beget it by riding the person and make, trying to control them or make them do it. Okay, But also, it, this, the, the negativity is going to do what? Well, the negativity is going to be the cause of various things. It's going to be the cause of all the negative emotions that we have in relationship to our family. So we're going to get angry, bitter, sad, disappointed, all those things in relationship to them because of the fact that we're looking at what's negative all the time. And then in the end, we just, basically, the person commits one little thing and then that becomes their whole persona. That's the only thing that we see in relationship to them. Or we just see the negative parts in relationship to them, which is actually not the case. But that means that de facto charity is not going to we're not going to have charity for them. If we love them, then we'll will the good of them. And that means that we'll want what's good for them and seek what's good for them, not look at what's negative and, want, and basically want to see what's negative. In many traditional families, they go around looking for the negative. Hmm, I wonder what that guy's problem is. You know, or they're, try, they're kind of figuring out what's his problem, right? First of all, as my sister is fond of saying, that's not your monkey. <laughs> basically, the, uh, basically this is a phrase that she started to, do not that's not my responsibility, right? One person told me, oh yeah, I know another priest. He says, that's not your dog to walk. Okay, the point being is, is that the defects the defects that you see among your siblings, it's not your monkey to beat him or to ridicule him or to deride him or to bring him down to the point where he finally gets his act together. That's not your monkey. What your responsibility is, is to see, when you see that, your first responsibility is to pray and only fraternally correct when you know it's going to be helpful. So this is, the, well, this is something to kind of keep in mind. The other side of it is, is that the more you try and control the external, the more you're going to realize it's out of your control. And therefore, the more pain it's going to cause you, and the more you're going to hate the thing. And this is one of the reasons why, if you're going to have any semblance of charity or peace, there has to be a complete relinquishing of the control over it. Okay. So in the family... Saint Thomas says that the charity has to follow the order, uh, the order of pro, uh, the principle of proximity, which basically means that you have to be more charitable to the people you're closest to than those who are neighbors. I find in traditional families, it's kind of like the mafia, right? They're shooting each other and beating each other up and hammering each other. But anybody outside of it, they're very kind or what have you. Or the opposite can be the case: is that is that they can kind of tolerate. Um, or they'll beat each other and the family up, but if somebody says anything negative against their family, they get all tore up about it. But the point is, is that people will be actually kinder to the people outside their family than in. This is completely disordered. And again, this is a sign of the negativity, because they just see the negative in the people that they live around. The one thing we have to realize is, in dealing with people's defects, the person's defects are there to purify you. They're not there for you necessarily to get rid of. It's not your job. I mean, you're supposed to pray, and you might have to correct them given the proper circumstances, but your job is to help the person spiritually, and so that may mean that you don't necessarily point out their defects. And, and if you're just focusing it on all the time, then you're never going to gain any joy in relationship to it. You know, uh, St. Therese said something very interesting she said when she was in choir stalls, there was this one nun who would make this clicking noise and it drove her out of her mind. And then she made a choice. I'm going to choose to find that clicking noise, something that, it, it, it's kind of like a thing of affection, right, she, that she kind of liked. it's a term, of a thing of endearment. And so she, she kept choosing to do that and eventually she liked hearing the little nun making her clicking noise. Okay. So what does this mean? I'm not suggesting that you like the defects of your family members. What I'm suggesting is, is that you have a choice of how you're going to relate to that. And if you choose to focus on the negative, you're just going to bring your faculty down, you're going to bring your spiritual life down, you're going to bring your moral life down, because you're you're not going to be advancing in virtue, and you're not going to be advancing in grace. The other one is those outside the family. Now, what I've noticed here is that traditionalists will look at the state of the world, they'll look at everybody, and they'll basically come to the conclusion that it says in Scripture, which is kind of interesting, it says in Scripture, in excesso me um, omnis homo mendox, in my excess I said, all men are liars, right? And, and, and it's specifically pointing out, look, not all men are liars, not everybody is evil, Every so often you'll come across people who are actually leading really good lives and they, they find this whole situation in our country absolutely alarming, right? But they don't say much, they're hidden people, etc. It's the, it's the vociferous, obnoxious, disordered, evil people that are all the people that are in, in the public eye all the time, it seems, these days. Not all of them, but many of them. I should probably say that because then people start thinking I'm evil because they're listening to my conferences. All right. But the point is, is that... Um, you have to begin to realize that not everybody is evil. It just means that as, as society begins to deteriorate, you just have to be more cautious, but you still have to give people somewhat the benefit of the doubt and don't get hung up on the negative all the time. And even and this is, this is true of anything from our employees, the people we work around, all those things, is don't keep focusing on the negative because then in the end, you're not going to be able to extend that charity to them. The next... Place I see that the negativity is really overtaking people is in the area of politics. Is it bad? Yes. It's probably far worse than we can possibly even imagine. The people I've talked to that have worked back in, in, in Washington, they'll go into details, but they say it is so corrupt and so bad that if the people knew how bad it was, they would be hanging the politicians from the lampposts. Okay, that's probably true. The thing is, is what? I can't let that get to me. One of the things I learned in the first few years as a priest is that if you keep focusing on how bad everything is, it's just gonna take you down spiritually because you're not gonna be thinking of the good, you're not gonna be thinking of God, you're not gonna be thinking of the virtues to develop or the good in the other people so that you can love them more. Instead, what you're going to do is is you're just gonna let this thing slowly consume you and in the end, you're gonna end up like a devil. Basically, who all he thinks about all day long is everything that's bad. And so I just realized, okay, I'm not going to let them do that. And so when it comes to the politics, again, it's no one of those things that you pay enough attention in order to understand what's going on. <clears throat> but if it starts getting to you spiritually, and how do you know it's starting to get to you spiritually? It starts affecting your ability to pray, or it starts affecting your trust in God, or it starts affecting the, uh, the charity that you might have for people. Uh, you know, some of the politicians that are particularly evil. If it's going to affect that charity, then you know, okay, I've got to back away a little bit from it until I can get that short up. And then the last one is in the church. Now, first let me say one thing. It has been a constant teaching of the church until recently. It's been a constant teaching of the church that all grace comes into the world by means of the Catholic Church. All of it. Which means even if a Protestant or someone else gets any grace whatsoever, it's by me, the church is the medium through which that passes. Okay. This means when we look at the state of the world or the politics or are these other things and we realize how bad they are, what that really tells you is how bad the state of the church is, of the members of the church. So when you look at things, you realize the church is in a very bad way. Okay. Obviously we see this, everything from this last synod to the behavior relationship to that. You know, the stuff we hear all, from every office from the top all the way down coming out, the stuff that's just completely contrary to what the way the church is taught, etc. Um, those of us who have a love for the church are going to find this very painful. So this means that in relationship to this, you got, you're going to have to do one of two things. One is just going to have to develop an ability to suffer. God is, wants you to suffer the state of the church as it is. It doesn't mean you don't pray for It doesn't mean you don't do those things to help it. It just means that you have to be willing to suffer it. The second part of it is is that you can't be too focused on it either. Anything but God, that's her principle, anything but God. You'll get these traditionalists who will spend, I actually know a man who systematically neglects his family to lecture and to write about the church and its state and what's wrong with it and politics and stuff, and he's completely neglecting his family because he's so focused on it. Well, and, and he's a very negative individual. Everything he's, Practically everything you hear coming out of his mouth is negative, just about. Not all of it, but just about. And part of that is because of the fact that he's focusing on the church when he should really be focusing on his family, by the way. But the point is, is that the church, you, you have to be detached even from it. The church is a created thing in the sense that it's a created um, participation in Christ's mystical body. It is his mystical body, but for us it's a created participation in that. We're part of it as a result of our creation. And so we just have to realize that really it's all about God again. In the church, in fact, you even see this among the traditionalists. They go to Mass. They're spending the entire time at Mass negatively judging the servers, how they're serving, the priest, he's not doing it right, he should do this, you know. He should be, you know, his beretta should be held this way, not that way. It's, you know, everything down to these little things. He's just constantly focusing on all that. And who's the guy getting left out in the process? God. I just thought, you know, if you just focus on God, you, things would be a lot easier. But these things can also take us down spiritually, where it just it robs us, because the demons want to do that. They want to rob you of your joy and your peace and ultimately your love that you have for other people and for God but they want to do that and so even in relationship to the church you just have to do your part for the church to the degree that you can and then you just have to be detached from it because God will straighten out the church in the end but we just have to be willing to let him do it because he's the only one that can do it and don't get so focused on the negativity part, because again, it's going to bring your charity down, it's going to bring your virtue down, it's going to, in the end, you're going to end up becoming very unmerciful and angry. This is one of the main things I see among the traditions, they're very angry people. And it's because they keep harping on the sins that other people have committed against them and how bad the situation is at church and how bad the politics are. Well, then, if that's the case, you know, you're becoming more like the demons than you are God, the blessed in heaven. And so, quite frankly, I'll take the place of the blessed in heaven. It doesn't mean you put your head in the sand. It just means that you, um, you don't have to sit there and read every last book that's come out about the state of the church. That's, that's what, that was a turning point. For me, I realized, I don't need to read this book about the state of the church. First of all, I know how bad it is. I have to probably know how more about bad it is than the person writing the book. I don't need this. What I need to do is focus on God and my spiritual life and helping people rather than on, on how bad the state of the church is. Okay. So negativity is one of those things that in the end, it just brings you down. And so you have to make a choice. Are you going to focus on that or not? Are you going to focus on the defects of your family or the church? Are you going to focus on these things? Or are you going to focus on God and what's good? The other side of it is, too, is, is that at a certain stage, you know, this is one of the reasons why most sanguine people can't be really angry for any length of time because it requires too much energy and it's too painful. So they're just like, eh, I don't want to bother. So they just give up on it, right? Okay, so it's kind of the same thing here. We just have to realize, look, if I'm thinking about all the negative stuff, all I'm doing is keeping myself in pain. I'm keeping the knife in me. Just let loose of it. Just forget about it and focus on the stuff that's good. It doesn't mean you bury your head in the sand. It just means you only look at stuff, only pay attention to those things that are negative to the degree that's necessary for your state in life. Okay. Any questions? you gotta have that <laughs> <laughs> hair-blown-back gently. look. <coughs> yeah?
1: Oh, well, when you say that uh, the state of the church affects... Everything else, uh, we as church uh, people, church men and women, yeah. uh, we must have some effect on that as well, being part of it.
0: Well, what it means is is that now God can use the church without any specific members of the church. However, the um, uh, that means that the grace that's merited. The reason our politics is so bad is because Catholics aren't leading the lives of grace and meriting the grace for the for the politicians. It's basically what that means. And so the fact that we don't pray for these people and the fact that we don't do anything for them and the fact that we're not leading the holy lives, and then we wonder why they're you know, committing fraud and doing everything under the sun and lying to us every time they open their mouth, etc. Well, sorry, but that's it's partly our own fault. In fact, as I said, the state of the world is, in the end, really the responsibility of the state of the church. It's really based on how the church... So that means that, <clears throat> the best way to get the church straight out in the politics and all this other stuff is for us to become holy because then we can merit the grace for this stuff to get better the other thing is too is, is that we get the leaders we deserve you know and that ought to tell you something about the members of the church right now because the, the people running the church right now are not, not, they're not good people most of them so <clears throat> yes um, so is it being negative
1: when you're in terms of like say playing the piano, you make a mistake and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have made that mistake you just keep on going back, you use that as like
0: a moment to get better. Yes, but in order to get better, what do you have to do? You have to shift away from the mistake you made in the past to doing what? Right keys. Yes, exactly. You have to shift your attention away from the thing in order to do it right. If you're only thinking that this is this is, wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, you're probably gonna just repeat the problem. You have to look at, no, this is the right way to do it. And so there, so you can use it, in fact, and that's the way your spiritual life should be when you when you fall into sin or those things, your sins from the past. They shouldn't be a motivation for you to beat yourself up. They should be a motivation of, I'm gonna work more on that virtue, I'm gonna conquer this, rather than letting it conquer you in a certain sense. Yes. Um, what
1: would be the recommended like uh, percentage amount of time to Beat yourself up. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> that would be one. But um, to
0: just kind of look up, you know, news or stuff about the church or whatever that could, you know, be, you know, new. I don't know. Like, should it be like nine percent of my time, or should it
1: be like? Yeah. You know, I know some people do it like fifty. It
0: really depends on your state in life. Okay, and your personality too. Maybe? Yes, yeah. I mean obviously personality wise because you can, you know, certain personality types are just going to get sucked into it. and uh, other, but you know, a lot of it has to do with your state of life. Like I think that husbands and fathers have an, a greater obligation to be more knowledgeable about like the state of the financial affairs, the state of the, the of the church, and the state of the politics in order to govern their family. It shouldn't be about. It shouldn't be you know in order to get more money. It should just be about make sure that they're being prudent with their money and making sure that for the sake of their family. And the same thing with the politics, so they can know to, you know, vote the right way and do things of that sort. But, um, and in relationship to the church, they have to be knowledge, more knowledgeable about it usually than the wives even, or they should be, because of the fact that um, it's their obligation to keep protect their, uh, their wife and their child morally and spiritually. So it's more incumbent upon them. So it just depends. So, I mean, I think for your average father or husband, he probably shouldn't be spending no more time than 30, to, 30 minutes to an hour a day watching this stuff, keeping track of it. And that will ebb and flow. You know, But much more than that, and it's you're basically just feeding curiosity, which is another thing you have to be careful about. But um, just getting kind of sucked into that, where you're just watching and looking at all the different things in order to... because you're feeding the curiosity. So that's one of the things that you have to be really careful in relationship to politics. But it really depends on the person's state in life. In the beginning stages, sometimes people are so ignorant, they're going to have to spend a lot of time coming up to speed. But then once they kind of come up to speed, you don't have to spend that much time on it. Right. So myself... <clears throat> I only spend about 15 to 30 minutes a day watching what's on the news. And that's, uh, both in the church and out. And that's just to keep price of it because inevitably someone's going to ask me about something. Right.
1: So. <clears throat> yes? In relation to politics, um, you know, when things get so bad in the political world that you say, well, what's the use? I, what's the use in voting? Why? You know what's going to be a negative outcome one way or another anymore, so... So, what's 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 your take
0: on that? Well, John Paul II basically enunciated a principle that had been in the tradition of the Church the whole time, which is yeah, um, that when you're in a position where you are you have an obligation to vote, you must vote, and you must vote for the lesser of the two evils as a means of preserving the good. So, you should vote. Now, my only the only time I tell people that that you wouldn't be responsible is if the vote, uh it's, and it's clearly manifest that the fraud committed in the voting process is such that your vote, it's not really voting. So, you know, so for example, let's just say for the sake of argument, we discovered that the presidential elections were completely rigged, that they had completely manipulated them, and that, yeah, people are voting, and they might use some of the votes, but really the, the, the numbers and who they're putting in is all predetermined. Then you wouldn't be obligated to vote because you're not, you're, there's no, it's not really voting, right? You're just going through this motion. On the other hand, if you don't have that certitude, then you should vote. So, um, and that's, and it's in order to preserve the good that otherwise would be lost, which is what we need to do. Because some people say, well, I'm voting for something evil. No, you're voting to preserve the good. Any other questions?
1: Just to follow up on that, because it looks like someone who's running for president this time around might be the the candidate that most people uh, in their right mind would be voting for. But he's he's not a what you call a social conservative,
0: right? Um, So, what exactly is your question? So,
1: so voting for that person is basically voting for the lesser of two evils, I guess, in in that
0: sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's going to be a little bit more socially conservative than the other candidate, but not by much. Very often, and you just have to preserve what little good you can. So, Um, and if our, you know, we get the leaders we deserve, and you're looking at the candidates for presidency, it's not a good (laughs) sign of our of our people. Okay. All right, I'll give you a blessing. Benedicto Deo Omnipotentes Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti and Supervosa et Manet Semper. Amen.